0: With a war raging in neighboring Ukraine, some Americans are shying away from visiting Eastern Europe. Cameron Hewitt is just back from Poland and updates us on how things are looking over there.
1: Being in Poland feels very safe. I don't have a lot of concerns that uh, invasion is imminent.
0: Some of the most treasured souvenirs in Europe are the elegant tiles that have been a signature of Portugal for centuries.
2: If I do a decoration at my place, I have to put some tiles. If I'm renewing, my kitchen is with tiles... We'll look at Portuguese ceramics in a minute. Author
0: Anthony Satin examines nomadic communities throughout history. He's found an enviable contentment among hunter-gatherers who understand their place in the natural world.
3: The happiest, the greatest, most exciting, and most successful periods in human history are the times when there's been freedom of movement. Come along for a great hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves.
0: There's a kind of restlessness that makes us human. It might explain why we like to leave home and return again. Anthony Satin sees this pattern throughout human history among the nomadic herdsmen and hunters that have been part of the Earth's fabric since prehistoric times. Yet governments today still try to get them to settle down in one place. We'll consider how nomadic groups have long served as a counterbalance to the empires of men in shaping our world and we'll get an update on the tourism scene in Poland from my right-hand researcher on Central and Eastern Europe. Let's open today's Travel with Rick Steves with a look at the elegant ceramic tiles you'll find covering the streets and buildings of Portugal. Historic tiles might depict different religious figures and battle scenes, while you'll find newer ones to be more colorful and art nouveau. Our guides to the tiles of Portugal are Lisbon-born and raised Cristina Duarte, and while Robert Wright hails from Memphis, he guides American travelers around Europe and makes his home now in Seville, after having lived in Lisbon and in Buenos Aires. Christina and Robert, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Rick. Christina, tell me, as a Portuguese person, what do tiles mean to the culture?
2: Tradition, especially. Not all of your everyday basis, but also of your culture. Culturally, because we were raising those tiles in most of the most important monuments and uh, churches and also representing parts of our culture. You go to a church, you don't see paintings done by Raphael or Donatello, even because they are Italian, they are not Portuguese, but you see the same representations in tile. So the beautiful paintings on the tiles. On the tiles.
0: Now, Robert, when you say tiles... What exactly do we mean, as opposed to canvas and so on? What, what is a tile in Portugal?
4: A tile in Portugal is a specialized form of doing ceramics, basically. Everybody's seen vases and are familiar with ceramics and plates and that kind of thing. But actually, if you just do the same sort of process and put it on a wall as a square, there you go. It's a tile.
0: Now, are these mostly decorative in a Moorish kind of way where you don't have a lot of images and they're just patterns? Or would they be like paintings broken into a grid and glued under the wall?
4: You can have everything under the sun because Portugal has done tile work for over 500 years. It started out as an Arabic tradition. That's where it came from. One of the most important kings in Portugal, Manuel I, he was the one who sort of brought tile work from Spain over, and it's just developed on its own. Cristina,
0: what is the Portuguese word for tiles?
2: (inaudible) Azulejo. Do you want it to make it even more complicated? You put it in plural, and azulejus. And where did
0: azulejus come from?
2: From the Arabic word al which is a square of polished ceramic. Oh, it actually literally means yes. a square of yes. polished ceramic. It <laughs> is what it is. <laughs> it is what
0: it is. Now, when we think about tiles, uh, most of us are going to be going to Lisbon. Robert, when you're in Lisbon, what would your favorite tile panels be?
4: Mainly uh, modern work, because it's so interesting. There is one avenue... It's not necessarily in a touristy part of Lisbon, but it's very easy to get to. It's Avenida Infante Santo that has a series of tile panels from the 50s and 60s. Most people think old for tiles. From the 1950s, 1950s, and, 1950s. and 60s. 1950s and 60s. Very great modern artists. One of my favorites is oh. Maria Kyle.
0: Christina, when you're thinking about tiles, where will you see them? Will you see them in restaurants? Will you see them uh, in them the subway? Yeah. Where do you look?
2: All over. It is what I was saying in the beginning. It makes part of our everywhere if I do a decoration at my place, I have to put some tiles. If I'm renewing my kitchen, is with tiles. So it's, it's not only culture and tradition. It makes part of our everyday basis. One thing is art, but also the purpose of it. And, and what, what is
0: the purpose of it? The
2: purpose of it, first of all, they are very washable mm-hmm. because they are polished with the glaze so, in places where you have more humidity, like uh, the mm. kitchen or the washroom, well, avoid steam and grease from the walls. And consequently, you see yes. them in a lot of restaurants
0: where it's yes. easy to clean up, and it exactly. gives that restaurant a little bit of uh, history and a venerability. Christina Duarte and Robert Wright are teaching us about the stylish and practical importance of the colorful tiles in Portugal right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Barbara from Princeton, New Jersey joins us on the line at 877 333 Rick. Hi, Barbara.
5: Hi there. I fell in love with Portuguese tiles 48 years ago when I decorated a kitchen around them in the the yellow, blue, and white, and then I moved. And since then, I've been trying to get back to Portugal to see them again. But I was perplexed when it came to buying them. I couldn't tell which, in the souvenir shops, they're not hand-painted. How do you tell which tiles are authentic and which are just made in Hong Kong?
4: That's a good question because a lot of people want a souvenir tile when they go to Lisbon as sort of a reminder. Maybe not buy an entire panel to decorate your kitchen, but many people want a single one. You can find tile work in different places in Lisbon. For example, you can go to what they call the Thieves Market, and you can find some old—it's basically a flea market is what it is— and you can find uh, some examples of tile work there, and uh, you can also find them in certain museums as well as— there are still factories that make tile work that have been around for centuries, and they still produce tiles.
5: I did see the Santa Ana shop, and I did buy a tile at a museum, and I'm pretty sure that's authentic. Mm -hmm. But is it fair to say that the little tiles that are in the souvenir shops are not authentic? Um,
4: it's, It's a give and take. It's probably not, but you never know. And the thing is, if you enjoy it, That's basically
0: your criteria. in a tourist shop, if you got a tile for $5, it's going to be just printed up and and, and sold. But if it works for you, that's a fun souvenir, very accessible and packable, a good memory. Christina?
2: Yes, exactly. Uh, For the glaze size you're selling, If it is a good memory, if you want really to bring the original glaze style, probably in an antique shop, but it, of course that it will not cost you a $5. But and if you s- want
0: to go to, uh, yeah, you can find a, an old a historic uh, yes. a piece of yes. art mm-hmm. if you mm-hmm. like. Yes,
2: in an mm-hmm. antique shop. And you'll see it sometimes, just by looking is difficult, but sometimes by the, how high they are right, how and how mm-hmm. how thick they are and by and how you- much combination of sand you can kind of have uh, the okay. first
0: idea. So you have a good sense of if it's new or old. Mm. And uh, can you, Robert, if you buy a mm. tile that's historic, can you take it out of Portugal?
4: You definitely can. But, Barbara, there's one thing you and everyone really needs to keep in mind is that there's a lot of theft these days of tile yes. work from the sides of buildings that are being resold illegally. And yep. there's a group, Projecto SOS Azulejo, who is trying to save and catalog all of the tile work in not just Lisbon but the whole country. So I would say go from a reliable antique dealer or a museum in order to know that you're not taking anything illegally out of the country. That's that's a
5: wonderful idea. And by the way, my favorite um, tile mural is the story of about eight panels and the story of Joseph at the monastery. I don't know how you pronounce it. Geronimo? Oh, the
0: Geronimo. Yeah. 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 All of us are smiling because we love (laughs) that. That's out in Belem. And you go out to the Hieronymus Monastery in beautiful Manueline style architecture, sumptuous courtyards, and some of the best tile work uh, anywhere, I would think. Hey, Barbara, thanks for your call. Thank you. Bye. We're cultivating a taste for tiles and porcelain arts that you'll see decorating so much of what you find in Portugal right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Our guides are Robert Wright and Cristina Duarte. Robert explores sites in Portugal, Spain, and Argentina on his website, endlessmile.com. And Christina's website includes a history of Lisbon at lisbonbeyond.pt. Rick is calling from Tucson, Arizona. Rick, thanks for your call.
5: Hi, nice to be on chat about Portugal, where we have never visited in our years of traveling. We're going to be up in the north of the country on the river for a while and then in Lisbon, and we're wondering if there are two or three sites or artworks or interesting places that are not so accessible that would be worth trying to to uh, search out.
2: I will say the cobblestones. Sometimes we tend to the cobblestones in Lisbon. Just, yes, we tend to just look to the the facades of the buildings. And yes, we have been talking about glazed mm-hmm. tiles, but actually cobblestones is like a different way of the, the glaze tile kind of pattern. Look down, look to your feet. Not only because they are cobblestones all over, so you have to have actually watch your step but uh, have a minute to see the old pattern and what do they represent.
0: What's the word in Portuguese for the cobblestones? Uh, the
2: black... Calçada.
0: Calçada. The characteristic black and white cobblestones you'll find all over Portugal and on the great squares in Lisbon, you can see the sea and the, and the ships and from where their trade came and so on, all worked into the mosaic on the main squares. Robert, what's an idea that you would recommend for people wanting to have a little better insight into some often overlooked slice of uh, Portuguese art or culture?
4: One of the best places to see tile work and artwork is the National Tile Museum in Lisbon because they have a wonderful historic background. They take you not only through the process of what it is to make a tile, but they also show you a historic overview of 500 years of tile work. And while many people consider going, they look at it on a map and it's not connected by the metro system or Mm -hmm. anything, and they think, well, maybe I'll not go out there. Definitely take the time to go out so, there.
0: Slam Dunk—that is the place mm-hmm. to go to yes. appreciate tiles in Portugal. The National Tile Museum, and it's just a, a six or eight-dollar taxi ride from. Uh, you can even I mean, get
4: there on the bus if you have one of on the bus. Lisbon yeah. uh, metro passes or bus passes. Very you can nice. use that.
0: There you go, Rick. Thanks for your call. Hey, great! Thanks. You bet. Let's just close with your favorite tile images for a masterpiece in tile that we can see as we sight see through Portugal. Robert, what is a favorite tile to see?
4: can i make it more than one because it's the entire metro system of lisbon the entire city is underground artwork because you take the metro and each station has a different tile pattern and it's great to go explore on your own and sort of see the sights imagine if you've got a rainy day in lisbon and you don't want to get wet uh you can go into a museum or you can just take the metro hop off on a stop where you see a really beautiful tile panel and you can walk around take
0: pictures and then keep going Probably one of the cheapest art galleries in the world is to just go into the metro system, stay down there, and enjoy all that art. Christina, what's your favorite tile tip?
2: Actually, it's a little bit more complicated because I tend to put them into ages, into centuries. Okay. So if we like uh, the yellows, what we call the pattern of the the tapestry, Mm -hmm. the yellows and the blues, why not getting out a little bit of uh, Lisbon and go to Coimbra and we find them in university? If we like the blue and whites... Probably going to Porto, and we have the Baroque time, and it is the blue and white influence. If we like really the 20s and the 30s, they are wonderful cafes. So why not just do one of those rests when you are after a hiking? And (laughs) why not stay in one of those cafes from the 20s, from the 30s, and they have lovely wall murals.
4: What I love is that there's no way to get away from tile mm-hmm. work in Lisbon. It's surrounding it. you at every mm-hmm. moment. So you might
0: as well learn to appreciate it yes. because it's a treasure right in your face. Cristina Duarte, Roberto Wright, thank you very much for contributing to our understanding of Portuguese tiles. Thank you, too. Thank you, Rick. Obrigada. It's the story of civilization as told through its outsiders, Anthony Satin, tells us how the right to roam is a basic tenet of being human. He examines the role of nomads and what they have to teach the rest of us today in just a bit. But first, we get an update on how things are looking for visitors to Poland. Cameron Hewitt tells us what to look for this year in Krakow, Warsaw, and Gdansk. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. With neighbors like they have, Russians to the east and Germans to the west... The people of Poland have had to develop a little bit of a protective edge over the centuries just to survive. Today, Poland is the fifth-largest member of the European Union. The country combines vibrant, historic, and trendy cities with uncomplicated and traditional small towns and farmlands. But now, with Russia's war against Ukraine just off its southeastern border, some Americans are wondering if now's not a good time to travel there to get the latest view on what it's like right now in Poland, we're joined by Cameron Hewitt. Cameron is my senior researcher at Rick Steves Europe, and he's co-authoring many of the Rick Steves guidebooks, including our coverage to Slovenia, Croatia, Hungary, and Poland. His interest in the region is stirred on by a pride in his own Polish ancestry. Cameron's just returned from updating our book on Poland, and now he joins us in the studio. Cameron, welcome back.
1: Thanks for having me. Dziękuję bardzo.
0: See, there you go. Now,
1: now, there you go. There you go.
0: So our challenge is Poland is a big deal in Europe. I mean, people don't realize what a power Poland is.
1: It's a big country. It's got Mm -hmm. as many people as California, and it's also making itself heard and known these days. It's becoming more and more powerful and, and prominent within the EU.
0: I think a lot of uh, English people didn't like Polish people having an influence on their rules and regulations. So they said, Brexit, let's get the heck out of here.
1: That was one of those factors. And, you know, someone just told me uh, sometimes we call these areas Eastern Europe, but I guess in England and Britain, sometimes that's used pejoratively, like it's an insult to say Eastern European. I I think it's something I'm proud of when I think about Eastern Europe. But yeah. uh, yeah, there's sort of some tension there.
0: So now you and I, in our work, we cover all of Europe, and I'm so thankful to let you take care of the Slavic part of Europe, Eastern Europe. You just love it. And Poland is one of your favorite destinations. What is it about Poland that a lot of people don't appreciate and you do?
1: Well, as you said, I have a special appreciation for it. I think some of it goes back to just that I have Polish ancestry. My grandfather, Jan Paweł Dombrowski, was born to Polish immigrants in Chicago, actually. I've actually been back to the villages that they came from. So there's that family connection. It's also just I find it a fascinating place with really very kind people, Polish history is very hard fought. People have a lot of pride. There's a lot of depth. There's a lot of kind of soulfulness in Poland. It's also just fun and beautiful. There's beautiful cities in Poland that are just buzzing with life. Some of those beautiful main squares and main streets and old towns anywhere in Europe, I think, are in Poland. And these days, the last several years, it's also just feeling very kind of modern and contemporary and trendy. And there's great food scene and there's great kind of entertainment and nightlife. It's just a really exciting place to travel.
0: You know, it's kind of exciting for me because I remember when I was uh, last in Warsaw, I was just overjoyed with the fact that things can get better for a country. I mean, it was tough in communism, and it was tough immediately after communism. And now you walk around and you don't feel that deficit in the East. It's the same as Scotland or Spain or France.
1: That's exactly right. And I I really noticed that Warsaw is a great example. The first time I went in the early 2000s, it just felt dreary, and you'd kind of find yourself trapped in these concourses under the train station and the, even the lettering was very old, and it felt kind of like from the Warsaw Pact. It just, yeah. There was something very foreign about it. And a few years later, this was already probably 15 years ago, uh, I was walking in those same quarters, and I noticed that they've upgraded even the typeface. Ah. It's sort of the international airport it's typeface. It's funny you say
0: that concourse is under the tracks and so on, because that's my memory of Leningrad, back before it was St. Petersburg, and of cities like Warsaw, is they have these giant tenement flats that stretch forever, like Moscow-style, and then they got little ramshackle kiosks that'll sell you your wieners to go, you know, and you've got these underpasses where you've got a little bit of commerce, but there's really not a lot of consumerism.
1: Well, there wasn't, but yeah, now it's interesting. That's the other thing. All the little shops, they used to be these little one-off, kind of humble, like someone's literally got a little patch of carpet with a few vegetables on it, and now it's all these kind of hip, trendy boutiques and international chains, and the whole place, as you said, it just feels very much like any part of Europe. You know, you
0: mentioned in passing about your Polish ancestry, but we're going to be filming together in Poland in a couple of months, and I am so excited that we are going to try to recreate the experience you had as a Polish-American tracking down your roots. What are we going to do? To Because you did it once uh, on your own.
1: I did. And, you know, there's 10 million of us, Americans and Canadians of Polish descent. And in my case, we knew the names of the, my great-grandparents and the villages. All we knew was sort of the names of the two villages they came from and their family names. And so I think the key thing is I contacted a local guide and a driver, and he could translate for us. He could look up some things. He, he honestly, I think, just did a Google search and said, yeah, the, the spellings are a little different, but I figured out what those towns are, and they're, they're 30 minutes apart. And so one morning I met him and we, we loaded into the car and he drove us out into the countryside. And it was a fascinating experience. We pulled up to the general store in one of these villages. And my great grandmother's name was uh, Wutsash. And he, he asked these guys standing out front drinking beers, do you know anyone named Wootsash?" And they pointed in every direction. Oh, Wutsash, Wutsash. Like they recognized the name and said, oh, yeah, everyone in this town is named for, for that. And then we went to the village church and we knocked on the door. And the priest was a little unsure at first. But thank goodness we had this great translator with us, Andrew. And he explained what we were doing. And the priest actually let us in, and he pulled out these literally 150-year-old record books. And we kind of cracked them open, and we literally found the birth and baptism records of a lot of my ancestors in these old books.
0: Now that, you couldn't get to first base without a, a local interpreter, guide, translator, and, and driver, I would think.
1: Yeah, that's my first tip uh, for people who are looking for their roots. you got to have help that way having somebody who knows what to do and uh, who to talk to and can translate.
0: Well, yeah. those are really long-lost relatives. You don't even speak English, and they don't know who you are. Yeah. But you found it. You yeah. F- you actually yes, found Yes, We actually people.
1: met my my grandfather's one of the – I don't think he's there anymore, but – Originally, we met my grandfather's first cousin was still living in this village. And
0: did they, they knew about your parents or your family? And yes.
1: Fund? In this case, they vaguely knew this cousin of my grandfather. He, he was like, oh, yeah, I remember he moved to Chicago and, you yeah, know, or he was, you know, his so parents they moved to Chicago. They would have enjoyed
0: that. They would have appreciated your Oh,
1: visit. he was, uh, he was over the moon, you know. They yeah. said it, it kind of made his whole week or his whole, yeah. his whole year probably. You know, <laughs> I,
0: I've had similar things in Norway. And I would think the lesson is don't hesitate to, if you are inclined to look for your roots, it's doable.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Same yep, thing. Yep.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Cameron Hewitt, and Cameron writes all the Rick Steves guidebooks to Eastern Europe, and we're talking about Poland. Cameron has just been back from Poland. We're heading off in a month or two to do some filming in Poland. I'm so excited to have you along, Cameron, on the crew, uh, because we're going to do an hour worth of TV, two half-hour episodes on this exciting and happening destination in Europe. When we think about Poland as a destination, of course, it's on the border of Ukraine, and there's a lot of people nervous about that. You were right there. We've just started our tour program to Poland. We did five or six tours. You were on on one of them, and uh, everybody had a fine time. But what is the reality for Americans thinking about going to Poland but nervous about it because of the Ukraine war?
1: I was there in May of 2022, which was just three months after the war started, and I was there again just recently. So I've been there several times. Early on and today, it's all the same, which is to say people in Poland feel very safe. Being in Poland feels very safe. I don't have a lot of concerns that uh, invasion is imminent. Uh, it's really important, I think, for people to understand that Poland is in the EU and it's in NATO. So there's kind of a an invisible red line surrounding it, whereas Ukraine was very vulnerable to Putin. So just geopolitically, it's, it's not that mm-hmm. risky. And I will say I, I, was, I joined a group of Polish guides leading one of our tours, and we had 20-some American tourists. And a lot of them said the first night, we were nervous about this. We thought about mm-hmm. canceling. And every one of us had a wonderful time. They said it was just a beautiful experience. They actually felt good about traveling in Poland at that time because, you know, Poland took in a huge number. Millions and millions of refugees passed through Poland. Something like a million and a half refugees settled yeah. You know, somewhat long-term, maybe maybe some of them permanently in Poland. And it just kind of felt good to be there at a time when this country could really use some some tourist income and um, some of our support. There was no concerns about safety, and I think it added a whole new interesting dimension to the trip.
0: And, you know, a lot of Americans, they would be inclined to say, well, what can I do to help? When a country is overwhelmed by refugees and having a tough time because of the war over its border, the best thing you can do to help as a typical American, I think, would be to go there and and, and spend some money in their tourist economy and not be needlessly afraid of something that's not really a risk.
1: That's the other thing that I think surprised all of us. It didn't feel overwhelmed with refugees. The numbers are huge. Walking around and driving around all over Poland, you, you barely, as a visitor, you barely saw any signs of a, quote, refugee crisis. Right. Because Poland took them in so seamlessly. People opened up. I know people personally who opened up their guest rooms They found places for all of these refugees to live almost immediately. So it wasn't like you see a lot of people struggling in the streets. They had already kind of joined Polish society. And my Polish friends told me, you know, I said, well, I'm surprised how few Ukrainians I see. And they say, oh, they're everywhere. You just you don't know it because... I understand a little Polish, but it, uh, my ear's not very good. They said, we know because we immediately can tell the difference. And they say, you go walking in the shopping mall or up the street, and you hear Ukrainians everywhere, but we wouldn't know as visitors because they've been integrated so mm-hmm. so uh, thoughtfully. So, so there's
0: two – some people just selfishly, I think, are concerned – well, not selfishly. It's because they don't want to add to the congestion, but they just think it's going to be a, a chaotic mess because they're dealing with such a refugee. So that's not that's not an, an issue. issue. Yeah. And then the safety issue, I mean, we got much bigger problems than a boarded trip to Europe if – Poland is involved in that war because that's NATO. That's exactly right. Then, yeah, that's so a you big don't, problem. That's not if that happens, it's just going to be a whole new
1: story. So. And people said something to me like, well, isn't there a time that a rocket accidentally flew into Poland and we heard about it? And I said, exactly. You heard about it because it was a big deal and it was an accident. And uh, that's why you heard about it, because that was a big story and it was quickly diffused.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Cameron Hewitt. And Cameron has for 20 years been my right hand man as we try to cover Europe with all of our guidebooks. Cameron's in charge of the eastern part of Europe. Cameron has just written a beautiful book. It's called The Temporary European Lessons and Confessions of a Professional Traveler. And I had so much fun reading this book, Cameron. And in so many ways, it's so insightful and, and uh, thought provoking and candid. And also gives a behind-the-scenes look at what it's like to have a job like you have, which is to try to stay up on a constantly evolving continent, how to stay up-to-date on that. And I remember in your book, you wrote that—I want to get a little bit going on to checking out different places in Poland here— and you wrote that when you go to Krakow, more than any other place in Europe, it's like arriving home. It's like being home. What is it about Krakow that makes you feel like you're coming home?
1: That's absolutely the case. I was just there again, and it felt the same way. Yeah, I mean, it is partly that my ancestors are from just, you know, an hour outside of Krakow. But it's also, I figured this out once, I think I've spent more time in Krakow than any other place in Europe, just because I love Poland so much. And I've I've been through many times working on our guidebooks. I've been through many times as a tour guide. And it's also just a very easy place to feel comfortable. Uh, It's got this beautiful old town that's surrounded by a wall and a park, and and it's just very tidy and, and well taken care of. and. You know, it's just an easy place to spend time. And
0: it is. is a great place to feel at home by, but it's nice to have places in Europe where you do feel at home. You know, when I come into Europe, a lot of times I fly to Amsterdam, and I don't stay in Amsterdam. I stay in the small, cozy town of Harlem, and I feel at home in Harlem, and uh, I feel at home at certain places in Tuscany or something, and to have those kind of little warm places where you know the, the guy in the coffee shop and so on, it, it's quite nice. Another thing you wrote in your book, The Temporary European was you have a, hey, I'm in Europe now moment. And we all have that, I think, when we fly to Europe. What is it that kind of kicks you into gear and makes you feel like, yes, I've traveled across the Atlantic, and now I'm here? What's that like when you have that, hey, I'm in Europe now moment in Krakow?
1: Well, you know, I was just thinking about this because I'm getting ready to take off on another trip the worst part of any trip is when you're just arriving, right? You're jet-lagged and you're being shuffled around the airport and you're changing planes. I'm so awkward. I feel like I've never
0: traveled. I don't know how to use my toiletries kit. Exactly. I I feel like, am I getting sick or is it jet-lag and I'm disoriented?
1: And then you, you know, you you make it to your hotel and you drop your stuff off and you're like, all right, I'm going to go for a walk. And and I always wait for this on every, I've been to Europe 40-some times and every time, I know when I go for that first walk, I don't know exactly when or how it's going to happen. I'm going to have this kind of epiphany of, oh, that's what this was all for. I I love being back here. And in Krakow, I I talk about this in my book, it's that amazing main square. The main market square of Krakow was one of the finest squares anywhere in Europe. It's just spectacular. And that was the one I described where I, I was so bleary-eyed from my trip, and I, you just walk out into that square, and it's just like you're on a stage set of Europe, and you hear the the bugler sounding the call from the, the clock tower of the church, and it's, there's a bustle of people around you, and it's, it's just that moment where you're like, ah, oh, this is definitely and, something I can't get back home. And
0: it's not that you're, oh, I, I'm in the town where I can see the Leonardo da Vinci painting. It's I'm in the town where I can buy my favorite jelly cookies.
1: Exactly. That's right. It's just all the little uh, mundane, me, everyday tell things. Tell me about your
0: mundane thing. There's something called a Prince Polo?
1: Yeah, there's these Polish, you know, when you travel to a place a lot, you get your own favorite little snacks. Because I
0: get my chocolate-covered digestives when I'm There funded. you go, in England.
1: Yes, yeah. So this is, the Prince Polo is just basically a wafer cookie that's been dipped in chocolate. <laughs> and anyone who's been to Poland or is Polish is, oh, of course, Prince Polo. It's kind of like the Hershey bar of, of Poland. And then they have these Delizia cookies, which are these jelly cookies that are dipped in chocolate. And, so
0: that's being a temporary European yeah. to have. Your favorite jelly cookies in Poland. That's and right. I guess yes. that's why that was in the introductory chapter yeah, of your yeah, book, right? Yes, exactly. So it's an example of how we can all be at home in Europe. Cameron Hewitt is Senior Content Manager at Rick Steve's Europe and my go to guy on Poland. He travels frequently to update our guidebooks with a special emphasis on the countries of Central and Eastern Europe. Cameron describes lessons learned from his own travel adventures in his book, The Temporary European. You'll find a link to Cameron's travel blog with this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. Hey, let us we've got a few more minutes, and I want to just kind of blitz through Poland here, Cameron. Let's say you got a week in Poland, and I'll let you kind of just sort it out. Understandably, the typical tourist wants to see Krakow, the historic capital, the cute town, and Warsaw, the muscular town and the present capital, and then if they know what's good for them, they want to see Gdansk.
1: That's right. Those are the big three. Take yep.
0: three minutes and sort those three out.
1: Yeah. So Krakow is, if you're going to one place in Poland, it makes sense if it's Krakow. It's the historic capital. It's the cultural capital. It's the intellectual capital. It's easy to get to. It's very easy to travel in. It's super accessible, wonderful museums. There's outstanding art museums and history museums. You
0: feel comfortable on foot.
1: It's totally pedestrian. That's right. The old town is is so easy to just walk around. So that's kind of the The easiest choice. And then, of course, from there, a lot of people like to day trip out to Auschwitz, Birkenau Concentration Camp. Which is
0: it's the most powerful concentration camp experience I've ever had. Absolutely. I've been to many concentration camps.
1: And it's only an hour and a half drive outside of Krakow. So a lot of people will take an extra day to to day trip there. Warsaw is the modern capital. And, you know, as we were discussing 10, 15, 20 years ago, it was kind of a depressing place. But I'm just inspired by Warsaw now. It's been completely revived. They fixed up all these parks. The riverfront embankments are thriving with people it has one of the best food scenes anywhere in Europe. It's just a delightful big city to spend time in. Again, you sit great on new a park, museums. You sit
0: on a park bench, you can push a button and hear Chopin.
1: It's fan- Yeah, and they still work. Yeah, they put these <laughs> in years that. ago, and I just tested one a few weeks ago. But there's these park benches around the city. This is the city of Chopin. And you sit on the bench and press a button, and you hear the music playing. It's great.
0: Now, I know there's a lot of post-industrial development and also complexes like food courts and so on. What's happening with that? Because a lot of us are looking for old-fashioned Europe. But of course, when you go to Warsaw, I think you should be looking for today's Poland.
1: This is a big trend throughout Poland, especially in Warsaw. The the term they use is post-industrial. So it's like, you know, it's an old factory or an old electrical power plant. And it's this old, beautiful red brick structure that's kind of fallen into disrepair. So they're going through and they're fixing them all up, they're rebuilding them, and then they're planting these beautiful, big, glassy-like food halls and shopping zones and entertainment complexes and movie theaters. And they're just absolutely thriving. In Warsaw, there's I'm thinking about five of them that have just opened maybe in the last five or ten years. And each one has its own personality. And it's a great way to kind of see the way that Poland respects its history, but also modernizes it. And it's a great way to get a sense of the contemporary city, not just kind of the old stuff.
0: And I think we should remind ourselves that today, when we look at some of these tragic aerial photographs of Ukrainian towns that have been completely decimated by Russia, where there's not a building that hasn't been gutted, Warsaw was the same way.
1: Warsaw was completely level. Yeah, Hitler did systematically destroy. He said that he was angry about an uprising there. He said, I want you to destroy every building in Warsaw to its foundations.
0: And the Warsaw people, the Poles, have rebuilt their historic center right down to the cracks in the walls and the funny joints before the bombing yep, so that yep. you have these resurrected old community. And at the same time, you've got these modern post-industrial complexes.
1: Yeah, and there's that big, hulking, ugly communist tower that they call it the Palace of Culture and Science and for years, that the was the tallest building. The Moscow Gothic building? Exactly. Don't and they call
0: it uh, Stalin's penis?
1: Yes, that's a <laughs> that's Come a on, that's called. Okay. <laughs> and this building was, uh, for years, for decades, it was the tallest building in Europe, uh, in this part of Europe, and it was the tallest building in Warsaw. And now there's all these glass towers that are going up around it. And they just actually built one that's even taller than that, that just opened a couple of years ago. And it's, it's a good symbol of the way Warsaw is.
0: And then Gdansk, we're missing Gdansk.
1: Yeah, that I think it's Poland's best kept secret. It might be one of Europe's best kept secrets. This is Gdańsk, which you might know by its old German name, Danzig. But this is the kind of the, the Baltic port city of Poland. It's where the Bain waterway meets the, the Baltic Sea. It feels more like Amsterdam or Scandinavia. It's got all these really beautiful does. old Hanseatic, skinny, Hanseatic, yeah, Hanseatic burgers, mansions and yeah. a grand kind of, uh, you know, so townhouses. much history there. So mm-hmm. much
0: history there. All right. Hey, well, Cameron Hewitt, thank you so much. Every time I read your, through your book, The Temporary European, I find new things to talk about, and we'll have to get together again and uh, enthuse about corners of Europe that are less appreciated and, and how we can enjoy the taste treats. Right now, thanks for sharing the latest on Poland.
1: All right. Thank you. I'll say again, dziękuję
0: I'm glad you said that. <laughs> Discover why all who wander are not lost. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. For thousands of years, nomads and settled people have coexisted, yet the stories of those who roam with their herds and have no permanent address usually plays a very small part in our recorded history. Nomadic people do have an oral history. That dates back to Neolithic times, and their story is so often misunderstood or or not even told at all. British author Anthony Satin has compiled a lifetime of stories about the restlessness that makes us feel human in his book. It's called Nomads, The Wanderers Who Shaped Our World. And he joins us today to talk about the shifting relationships between nomads and settled communities over the last 12,000 years. Anthony, thanks so much for being here.
3: Rick, thanks for having me on the show. My goodness, I've
0: long been fascinated by nomads and you've written the book that gives us an insight as if we've traveled with all of these communities and you wrote your book about nomads and then I understand you kind of have a nomadic existence going from London to Umbria. Is there any connection with your fascination with nomadic communities and the fact that you're not that settled yourself?
3: no i I've been on the move for a long, long time, all my adult life i'm- be, I'm beginning to settle in my sort of later age. oh, okay, well, you've so, got that nomadic spirit, it sounds like yeah, yeah, no, I'm still moving, still moving. What
0: got you interested in nomads in the beginning?
3: you know when i left um when I left high school, I went traveling around the Middle East. I was camping in the on the Sinai Peninsula, which was then occupied by um, Israel and is now part of Egypt. And has always been home to nomads, to Bedouin, because you can't, you can't farm it. And everybody had said to me, oh, watch out when you go there, because, you know, the nomads are going to steal from you. You better sleep with your passport down your, and your money down your, down your sleeping bag. And I was sleeping <laughs> out on the beach. And I had a completely opposite experience. These wonderful people who looked after, who thought it was a bit odd, right? because at that time there were no hotels or shops or whatever on the Sinai Peninsula. It was really just sort of barren desert yeah. and they were thinking how is this guy going to look after himself i was there with a you know with a friend we'd come from school and and we'd come with as much bread as we could carry and chocolate spread and water bottled water <laughs> to see how long we could survive and they so they these guys looked after us and that was c- sort of completely not my expectation
0: right. what i what people had told me so babes in the wilderness there
3: yeah exactly and then and then you know jump forward about uh, 10 12 years and i i settled in cairo and, you know, nomads, when you live in Cairo, no, no, they're not your every day, but they are part of the periphery. You know, people do have an awareness and an understanding of nomadic culture. And I got back to London and thought, it's really odd. We just don't think about it. You know, in Europe, it's just not part of the story. How do you define nomad? You know, the meaning changes a lot over time, but it, it's a very, very old word. It goes back to sort of early Indo-European, um, so sort of right at the very beginning of language. The word was nomos, and it's either sort of having animals that need pasture or having the right to take your animals onto a piece of land. But it's absolutely connected to having animals that need to be fed.
0: It's almost by definition animal herders that, that roam with the needs of their animals.
3: Exactly that. And it's good to remember, for instance, the majority of our planet is not suited for agriculture. It's suited for herding. That's for people. Right. Most nomads move their flocks from summer to winter pastures. And it might be in and out of the desert. So if you're, for instance, in Arabia or North Africa, you'll move your, your animals into the desert in the winter because there's grazing and you'll move them out because everything burns up in the summer.
0: I remember... This days when I used to sleep with my money belt at the bottom of my sleeping bag, too. That's just one generation ago, really. And I remember nomadic communities make, you know, we were aware of that in these communities because they'd come in to trade and so on. And there's been quite a change, even in our lifetime. And in your book, you talk about, in human history, how we've gone from, what, 100% of everybody being nomadic. And today, it must be less than 1%. Uh, it's an interesting dynamic. Uh, what is there, like almost 8 billion people on the planet now? How many nomads would you estimate there are? And I would imagine, to answer that, you've got to define nomadic and semi-nomadic.
3: I mean, I, th- I think the point to make about that is, I mean, about 12,000 years ago, which is more or less when I start my book, we all lived on the move as hunter-gatherers. And I don't think the population of mobile people, let's call them mobile communities, has changed dramatically since then i mean i think there's about it's thought there's about 40 million people living nomadic lives pastoralists in the world what's changed is the settled community has gone from you know a million to a billion and now to eight billion or whatever and you know that's that's the huge change and the great joy of of looking at nomads and writing about them is realizing this has just been the constant you know they've just carried on doing what they've always done
0: yeah I, you know, I was just in uh, Palestine and we were meeting with some Bedouins and they were talking about because of the complexities of the modern world and how things are stacked against nomadic lifestyles, they were begrudgingly having to be more settled, but they were still semi-nomadic. Is that a way that nomadic communities are surviving now is having to compromise a little bit with their free spirits?
3: Yeah, a- absolutely. And and governments all over the place are doing their best to get nomads to settle. That's really what's at the core of, of my book. And that is um, this suspicion of, of settled people of those who live on the move. Um, ah. You know, where have they come from? Where are they going? Why have they come here? They must be carrying drugs. They must be smuggling arms. Yeah. They must be all that stuff.
0: But there is that tension between uh, governments and nomadic people, That's probably nothing new.
3: No, no, not at all. And I mean, certainly, you know, I I track it back about 100 years in my book. But I write about this tribe, the Bakhtiari in Iran, who are still doing what they've been doing for, you know, they claim for 1,000, 2,000 years. But I know they've been doing this for 150 years because there are good records of them. And they, they all complain that their numbers are dwindling because the government offers them you want your children to be part of the modern world? Well, they need to go to school. Well, we can provide them with a dormitory and an education. And then it's very difficult for the kids to go back into the nomad life. Yeah. And the same same for elderly people. You want your elderly people to be looked after in old age?
0: You know, Anthony, I, saw that I experienced the same thing in eastern Turkey with the Kurdish nomads. If I understood it correctly, Ankara, you know, the national government of Turkey, yeah. offered them land and houses and schools and and they'd build their own fences for them essentially and the people they didn't even want the free property or they didn't want the education because it was a conspiracy against their own way of living
3: It is and, and it's much harder to control people if they're not of any fixed address, that's the point
0: Anthony Satin's our guest from his home in the mountains above Perugia in Italy right now on Travel with Rick Steves He's a fellow with the Royal Geographic Society, and he's hosted travel documentaries for the BBC. Anthony investigates how nomadic peoples have shaped civilization in his book, Nomads, The Wanderers Who Shaped Our World. Anthony also specializes in historical works on Egypt and North Africa. Some of his earlier books look into Florence Nightingale's travels on the Nile and how T.E. Lawrence became Lawrence of Arabia. His website is anthonysatin.com spelled S-A-T-T-I-N. Anthony, we're talking about the relationship between nomads and settled people, and when I think of nomads, I guess a lot of people would think of Attila the Hun and Genghis Khan, these guys that were just, like, walking mass producers of death. It's not a very good um, cover uh, child for the uh, image of nomadic life.
3: No, not at all, and, and, and that's another reason why I wanted to write this book, because... You know, you mentioned earlier that nomadic people have an oral tradition. That's how they preserve their stories. And the only time they get a a look in at our settled histories is when there's trouble. And, you know, I studied history at at high school and I I came out of it being able to name check three nomads, Attila the Hun, Genghis Khan and Tamburlaine, you know, and they are the world's great, presented as the world's great killers. And it's true they killed lots of people, but that's not all they did. And that in no way reflects the, the, the reality of, of the relationship between nomads and settlers, even in those troubled times. For instance, I write about uh, quite a lot about uh, Genghis Khan and Timur, or tamerlane as he's called in the West, who really changed the world. For instance, without the Mongol Renaissance, as I call it, the, the world that Timur brings into creation at the end of the 1300s, the beginning of the 1400s, we wouldn't have had a European renaissance in the way we had it and and when we had it. You know, he is the facilitator of so much because he opens up the the link between China and and the West.
0: It's so important that we recognize that, uh, you know, the winners get to write the history and so on, and particularly societies that have written history have an advantage over communities that don't have a written history. (laughs) But uh, when we think of the world, we think of it in terms of, the empire of Alexander the Great or the, or the Roman Empire or the Ottoman Empire. But uh, there's another overlay or underlay, which would be the nomadic peoples that lived there before and to a certain extent live there today. And in your book, you're sort of creating an ability to see the world from from that perspective. Uh, isn't that part of your, your goal in writing this book?
3: There was a lovely description of history from an Oxford and Princeton eminent historian. Uh, and he describes it as a path picked through ruins. And so the only role that a nomad who doesn't build monuments could have in this version of history is as the creator of ruins, somebody who destroys things. And that that just doesn't reflect the reality. I mean, that you know, nomads are the great survivors.
0: Well, here's the reality then, because you open and close your book with um, hanging out with the Bakhtiari a uh, nomadic tribe in in Iran, right? You know, you were just like hanging out with them. Can you give us a vivid image other than some guy on a horse with a big sword chopping off the heads of settled people? <laughs> can you give us a more intimate look at what you learned by actually sort of embedding yourself with the Bhaktiaris? How did they eat, sleep, work, relax, govern themselves, that sort of thing?
3: It's an eye opener to spend time with nomadic people because probably the most important thing that occurred to me while I was with these people and you know they're living in their in their tents and I'm sleeping in a tent you know just beside their camp was their absolute understanding of their relationship with their surroundings with the natural world you know this is yeah. this is absolutely cool we the, you know fifty percent of of humans now live in an urban environment, most of us in apartments you know no sense of of connection with the natural world or well, here are people who. It's absolutely, you know, essential and relevant to every moment of every day. And it's not just a question of, is it going to rain today? It's a question of, what do we do with the changing climate? What do we do with, you know, because their absolute necessity is to find pasture for their animals or their animals die. And so they're in a very, very real and vital relationship with their surroundings. And that
0: kind of fundamental,
3: extraordinary and electrifying, but also the the hospitality, the openness, the... You know, the welcome, I was staying with, with one family, but I, you know, I traveled around in the valleys uh, where, and we're up in, you know, about sort of 3,000 meters up in the, in the mountains in Iran and it's spring, the valleys are carpeted with beautiful spring flowers, the, the, the snow is melting off the high peaks so the streams are all rushing around. It's, you know, it's a happy time for these people. They've made the journey up from the Mesopotamian plain down the, near the Iraqi border where it's got really hot and they'll stay up in the mountains till it starts freezing and then they'll go down again. And they. But, but,
0: uh, Anthony, don't, don't they know they should be happier if they had more material possessions? Don't they just. Don't the children wish they had a bigger variety of, of shoes? and? Uh, well, they you know...
3: do have some. No, no, no. <laughs> they do have some. For instance, I was surprised to see one tent really brightly lit at night. So I went in and they're there watching television. Uh, and I'm thinking, no, I no, waited. Wait, this car, this isn't right. Can, no can't watch television up in the mountains. They did. They had a car battery they, and and solar panels and all that stuff. But the essential thing is they can only have what they can move with, and you know. And now some of them are are moving with trucks between their summer and winter pastures. But you know, they live light, and that's another thing that to you know and to, they're, they're to learn going
0: from them. where they need to go to to have their herds. Be able to eat and drink. I mean, that's kind of uh, the basic thing. You know, I I really appreciated in your book you wrote at the beginning, all humankind lived on the move across a world in which the only barriers were the natural ones of forest, river, mountain, and desert, and the ones that were man-made were from branches and thorns. By the end of your book, then, you wrote wanderers must now pick their way across a world divided by borders, highways and walls and by the international agreements made by nation states. Boy, Anthony, that's a a tough reality for nomadic communities to deal with. All that change just in the basic freedom to roam.
3: It is really tough and it has serious consequences for them. But let's remember that effectively I'm writing about all of us in this book. It's a tough reality for all of us. And one of my motives for writing this book, it was my Brexit protest. It's my, it's my protest at walls going up all over the place, you know, in, in the US, in the, in the UK. in the, you know, this is, this is a reality for, for settled and nomadic peoples. And it's not, not made the world any better, I think. And one of the points I wanted to make in the book is that the, the happiest, the greatest, most exciting and most successful periods of, in human history are the times when there's been freedom of movement
0: the role of nomads over the centuries and how these wanderers have shaped our world. That's the focus of Anthony Satin's latest book, Nomads. There's been DNA research that suggests that a tendency to roam may be related to the same genes that are associated with what we call attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Anthony and I discussed that, plus the early American settlers who preferred the nomadic life of their Native American neighbors over living in their colonies. It's in an extra to our conversation. You can hear it with this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. Anthony, I'm fascinated by nomadic peoples in the Americas and actually across the Arctic, and I'm kind of aware that there's a lot of different groups across the Arctic, and there's a lot of different groups of indigenous peoples who are no longer allowed to be nomadic in the Americas. They survive. What do they have in common when you think about these communities that seem separated but the more you look at it, the more they are similar.
3: Yes, there are, there are lots of similarities between them, and, and the fundamental one is is that sense of being at peace and and at home in the natural world. There's also a way of thinking that comes with living in the natural world, living you know without without certainty every day, and it's a sort of it has been called nomadic thinking, and it's a divergent way of of looking at things. It's having it's having multiple solutions to every day.
0: Do nomadic communities have some kind of government? I mean, it seems interesting to me that they don't have a, a single voice when it comes to dealing with challenges from outside their communities.
3: No, there are, you know, there are, um, yes, nomadic congresses across Eurasia and, and things like that. But no, there's no, there's no central gathering. More's the pity, really, because they do, as you say, have so much in common across the Americas and across the world. But hasn't been in the interest of any of the settled governments to allow nomadic peoples to gather together.
0: Anthony Satin, this is so fascinating. Thank you for writing your book, Nomads, the Wanderers who Shaped Our World. and Anthony, reading through your book, there were so many moments that you had with nomadic peoples that just would be an inspiration if any of us could share those. Can you just take one favorite moment where you recognized the the nobility and the beauty of this way of life that is actually uh, quite seriously threatened.
3: The moment that springs to mind is is one I haven't written about. I was back in Sinai Desert about 15 years ago and trekking, and I came across a couple of tents, and a um, man came out, you know, curious, invited me in, gave me a cup of tea, Uh, Wendon got his sort of it was like a homemade banjo from a metal dish and a stick he'd put up and some some wire he'd strung. Started playing music for me, you know. And the hospitality was is just so extraordinary and and welcoming, you know. And then eventually he came around to say, well, what are you doing here, and what's your story? Mm. And then and then you know very very quickly there's an engagement going on. And I'm telling him things he doesn't know and he's telling me things I don't know. And I just find that that sort of encounter is always the case with nomads and is increasingly less the case with settled people.
0: This is a fascinating way that we can learn about our own society, our own communities, our own civilization by leaving them and looking at them from a distance, from a different perspective, perhaps from a perspective of a nomadic community. Anthony Satin, thanks for joining us, and best wishes with your your writing and raising awareness of the beauty and the plight of nomadic communities across our planet.
1: Rick,
3: thanks. It's been a pleasure talking.
1: Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton, Kaz Hall, and Donna Bardsley. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling. Our theme music was written and performed by Jerry Frank. Affiliate relations are by Sheila Gruzoff. You
5: can find links to our guests and search the show archives at ricksteves.com radio. We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves.
0: The Rick Steves Guidebooks originated as the handbooks for our Rick Steves tours, but these are designed to give you all the details so you can do our tours without us. From Spain to Finland and from Scotland to Greece, we've got over 50 titles, each of them lovingly updated so you can be your own guide and a dang good one. Find them at your favorite bookseller and at ricksteves.com.